And so this letter to the Ephesians, it's broken up into two parts. Chapters 1 to 3 is all about the new identity that the Christian has in Christ, through faith in Christ alone. And then chapter 4 to 6 will unpack, well, now what? What do we do? What activity should flow out of this new identity? In other words, how does position in Christ drive and dictate practice for him? How does the wealth of Christ's blessings to us dictate our walk through Christ? And so that's where we pick up this morning in Ephesians chapter 1 as Paul continues to take us on this spiritual hike away from all of our fears, all of the idols of our hearts, towards this overlook, this scenic, majestic overlook to behold and take in the God of all glory, the one who speaks deep assurance when we have no more to look for in ourselves. This deep assurance that, as we're going to see in verse 11 to 14, comes from the Holy Spirit who reveals to us God's purpose, indwells us with God's presence, and then gives us this eternal pledge, this guarantee of God's of a future with God. God's purpose revealed, God's presence filling us, and a pledge or a guarantee for all eternity. All in four little verses. I told you this wasn't so much a train wreck as it is a masterpiece. So let's begin understanding and knowing what is God's purpose amidst all of this. And it, in a nutshell, is that he would be glorified, that God would be glorified. Turn with me to verse 11 and 12 in Ephesians chapter 1. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, the purpose, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that reason, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This passage, these two verses, speak a deep word of purpose and assurance that God will bring to fruition all of his desires, chiefly to be glorified. And that brings us deep hope even amidst our fears. See, earlier I asked you, what was one of your greatest fears? I, honestly, for me, one of the fears that I found out I didn't even know I had until I came to visit you all the first time I was here was on the flight home. See, leaving Carterville for the first time, I didn't drive back to St. Louis. I took the flight from Marion to St. Louis. Anyone else ever done this? Yes. We've lived to tell about this. Praise God. Here's, if you haven't, let me give you a little picture of what happens. You show up to the smallest airport with free parking. That's not a good sign. Then they take your body weight, not your luggage weight, your body weight, as if that should matter when you're in an aircraft. And then you and five strangers, you cram into an aircraft that's smaller than Fred's tractor out there. The plane hits 60 miles an hour on the takeoff runway, and then it's lifted up to, like, maybe, I was looking at the altimeter... There's no division between the pilot's cockpit and row two. So I'm looking at the altimeter, 8,000 feet, and I am, like, reaching for the parachute under me. Like, this is going to end poorly. After 30 minutes, I see the site of assurance that I've been looking for. I see St. Louis Airport, a modern runway. We're almost there. We're going to be on the ground soon. The purpose that this flight took off for, get me there safely, is now going to come to fruition, despite my deep doubts and my fears. For the last 30 minutes, that felt like an eternity. How often in our lives do we feel like we're trying to navigate the bumpy skies of like chronic illness, 
dwindling finances, difficult relationships at home with children or spouses, how often do we feel like, honestly, that we're trying to navigate those as if we're sitting in row two of a tiny propeller plane with no control and no hope for landing? If you're anything like me, I feel like that often. And so these two verses speak a deep word of hope because they tell me God has a purpose in the midst of every difficulty, and God is so sovereignly good that he's going to accomplish what is going to bring him glory and his people good. And we know that right away because he tells of a gift we've been given in verse 11. Look at the first few words. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. That's good news. And the translators here, they they struggle to understand exactly what we have obtained an inheritance means. There's two interpretations. Both are good news. One is we've been given a gift by God, and that's very likely. The other is we've been made God's inheritance. Based on the original language, it could be one or the other, and both are good news. We are either given all that we need in Christ, which we are, or in light of what we've seen in the Old Testament, God has set aside a people for his purposes. In Deuteronomy 4, we hear he chose Israel out of the furnace of Egypt to be his inheritance. Deuteronomy 4.20. Ephesians 1 says we've been predestined, predestined, two words there, predestined for adoption as his children. He's making us his people through faith in Christ. He's giving us our gifts. We become his inheritance. What good news. And this is all according to his purpose. Continue on with me in verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, predestined, according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestination. Predestination basically means predetermined. God has decided and willed from eternity past into eternity future to do something that was for his people's good and that shows off his glory. His predestination shows us two important things about God's character, which we can bank on in the midst of all of the bumpy flights of our lives. It shows us that God is good and great. God is good and great. First, God is good. How merciful, how loving of a sovereign father to look upon us, rebellious sinners, and say, I'm going to set my love on them, even though they don't deserve it, and even though they can never earn it. How good of God. And yet, how great of God at the same time. His purpose according to the counsel of his will. From eternity past, he decided, I'm going to do something. And then the counsel of his will is all he needed to confirm it. He didn't counsel of his will. We think, um, my dad works in the government. I think counsel of advisors, like the president's cabinet. All these people working together to make a decision. God needs no, God needs no outside advisors. He has perfect power and eternal and infinite wisdom. He can work his purposes according to the counsel of his will. He is good and great. And it's no wonder he reiterates this over and over in scripture because we're so quick to forget it. We're so quick to take off in those little tiny propeller planes thinking, I got to be good and great. I got to get myself to St. Louis airport, proverbially speaking. God is good and great. And he says it so clearly in one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 46. Listen to these words from the sovereign and good God. Remember the former things of old, as if we could. For I am God, and there is no other. 
I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purposes. God working by his good and great power for his glory. Nothing can thwart his plans. Nothing can cease his power. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. He created all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Psalm 115 says, He's in the heavens right now and he's doing all that he pleases. Our God is so good and our God is so great. And verse 12 says he's working for a very chief end, his glory. His glory. Look with me at verse 12. Here's the purpose statement. So that... So that, that's the reason, the purpose. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that we'd be to the praise of his glory. And it's Paul who's writing and using the word we. Who's he talking about? Well, Paul is an ethnic Jew who's become a Christian. He's saying all of the Jewish Christians who have turned to hope in Christ who have turned away from trust and trying to uphold the law, trying to be righteous on their own standing, and instead turn towards hoping in, throwing themselves on the sufficient work and atoning penalty and sacrifice of Jesus in their half, on their behalf. They've hoped in Christ. And now their salvation, God's salvation of them, demonstrates the praise of God's glory. So that we would be, that we would be to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory. It sounds really good, doesn't it? it? sounds like something we should put on a slide behind us, which we have for the theme of this book, because it's repeated over and over. But what does it mean? Well, God's glory, the praise of his glory, is like him going public with his holy perfection. Him demonstrating clearly in a way that we can perceive his unique, perfect, moral majesty. Love, justice, mercy, even wrath, beyond what our human capacities, what our three-ounce brains with a sinful, fallen disposition cannot begin to fathom, God begins to make known. He shows off his goodness, his greatness to us. He goes public with all of his holy perfection. He makes his glory known. And that's what we need so deeply. We need to take our eyes off ourselves, put them on to the God of all glory, because only when we look externally and vertically do we find the assurance that we so long for internally? The God of all glory, the God who is good and great, invites us to rest in him through faith in Christ. And so Paul also says in Romans 11 that it's for him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. See, God works for his glory, and simultaneously it's the work of the good for his people. God working for his glory and the good of his people is something that we can, we can trust we can run to him and say, thank you, God, for being so good and so great. Thank you, God, for giving us those runway lights, so to say, off in the distance that you will never leave or forsake your children. You've adopted us. You are a good father. You've redeemed us. You've bought us back through your son's blood. And now you give us your Holy Spirit to live inside of us. So what difference does this make for Christian Covenant Fellowship in 2019? Here's what it means. I think of many things. Our objective together is to show off God's glory. Our objective together is to show off God's glory. We haven't come to have the, you know, the best of anything from the outward perspective, but we have come to show off God's glory. Our mission statement is to make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. And this gets lived out in how we deal with each other, 
in how we approach God. It, let me just say this right now. It has been a tremendous joy, tr- like tremendous joy beyond what I could have imagined to be with you all for the last two and a half months. It is a humbling privilege with a capital H and a capital P to serve as your pastor. And Lord willing, I look forward to many more months and hopefully years to come, as long as you'll have me. And yet I know for some in this room, some in this church, transitions are always hard. Whether The good, the bad, all of them. Transitions can be hard. They prompt questions. They ask, where are we going? What are we doing? How are we going to get there? And so what I want to say in the midst of this is, yes, let's walk together. This can be difficult, but at the same time, how exciting. How exciting that we get to participate in an eternally worthy goal. We get to show off God's glory together in the local church. Just even this small gathering this morning, Many of us wouldn't even sit in the same room with each other if not for the reconciling work of God to bring us together. We are an evidence, a living evidence of his mercy at work to show off his glory. We have no greater end and we will find no greater pleasure than living to the praise of God's glory. So, therefore, if we have hoped in Christ, that means horizontally we should love each other. We should not just say we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We should look to each other's best intentions, their, their best needs, and pursue them in genuine sacrificial love, even at cost to ourselves. Vertically, that means we approach God with all of this praise. God, you've drawn me to yourself as your son through Christ. You've placed me in this church to show off your glory. Therefore, I can't wait to hear what you're going to tell me in Scripture. My time of listening to you in your word, that's when I really believe you're speaking to me. And so I go to you often. And God, I can't wait to speak with you in prayer because you you listen to your children. Just like a father, just like I listened to my son Josiah, and Ezra's working on it. Josiah's a little bit farther along. I listen to him, regardless of what he's saying, and it brings me joy. Our Heavenly Father wants us to speak with him in prayer. So we prioritize these gatherings on Sundays, Wednesdays, small groups, because we want to commune with our Father, the very heavenly Father who works for His glory and our good, also then gives us His presence. He gives us His presence, His Spirit living in us. And that's what we hear of in verse 13. So we go from His purpose to be glorified to His presence now living in us. Verse 13. Let's follow along. In Him, we're going back to the big theme of the letter, everything's in and through Jesus Christ. In Him, Jesus. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. It's like a word for branding, kind of ownership. And I, I have no idea if any of you are, but... I have mad respect for cattle ranchers. Guys, you know a thing or two about branding. And I, of course, you can tell by my appearance and my predisclosed disposition as a man of the great indoors, I have no business being near branding iron. But I know someone who did and showed me what it was like. My grandfather, John Sonnen, was a rough, <laughs> rugged dude. A southwest Texas cattle rancher. And every time we would go visit him, there was one thing he loved to take my brothers and I to go and do. He took us to the cattle auctions. Cattle auctions. 
It was like the ultimate grandparent babysitting. Business for him, circus for us. These things are wild. You walk into the arena, and you smell like popcorn, cotton candy, and cow manure all at once. And they got this big arena, this ring in the middle, and they parade these bovines out into it, these huge animals, of the like I wish I have not yet seen in uh, the urban areas where I'm from. They parade him out into the middle of the arena. This loud announcer just rambles off price after price, faster than I ramble through these sermons. My apologies. And it's all to this point. So cattle ranchers can come bid on, buy, bring home, and finally brand. Set their seal into the hide. Like, literally burn a mark of ownership into the hide of their cows. And their brand isn't just like, oh, that's going to wash off like a temporary tattoo. It's there forever. It's a mark of ownership. It's a mark of protection. It's a kind of like a divine birthmark. Not divine. A, a bovine birthmark signifying that this cow belongs to this rancher and that rancher is committed to that cow's good even at cost of themselves, whether it be predator, prey, enemy, whatever. The branding, the sealing matters. Here in verse 13, Paul says God brands. He seals his people as his own. He doesn't just, and the good news is, he doesn't just put something on our skin like another external birthmark. He seals our hearts with the very presence, his own presence living in us. He brands us, so to say, as his own, a mark of ownership, a mark of presence, a mark of protection, a mark of great promise for his children. Verse 13 says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We to you. Something's changing. Paul's talking about not just himself and Jewish Christians. He's talking about the Gentiles. Others, not just Rabinowitzes and Cohens, which is good news for guys like me with the last name Parker, the Smiths, the Brandons in the room. We're sitting on the other side of the world from Israel. In 2019, worshiping the same risen Savior that the Jews longed for ages and ages to see come. And this Savior has come to unite us. Jew and Gentile, as we're going to see in Ephesians 2, now worshiping together. Not just we, not just you, in Him, we together, collectively, have been sealed by the Spirit if we are in Him. If we have believed in Him. And here's who the promised, it says here in verse 13, it was the promised Holy Spirit. As if the cows knew what to look forward to when they knew the good rancher was going to come by them. We didn't know that. <laughs> we didn't know that. But the Spirit was promised. God promised and previewed that he would indeed work for his people. The promised Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The one who was active at creation, promised throughout all the Old Testament, the one who would come and turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, be poured out on all flesh, and at Pentecost he was. After Jesus ascended, the Spirit descended, filled the disciples there in Acts chapter 2, and they began to speak of the risen Savior because the Spirit had filled them. And that happens now. That happens now for every believer at the moment of conversion. At the moment of giving God your sin, receiving His work to forgive you personally, He fills you with His presence. He seals you, marks you, brands you as His own. And we know it happens at conversion because verse 13 tells us so. Go back to verse 13. In him, when? When? Matter of, like, chronological, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. When you heard, 
the word of truth. The word of truth. Paul's not saying his ideas. He's saying God's promise and now come to fruition in the life, death, and resurrection. The word of truth is the gospel of our salvation. We could have no greater words of truth than scripture. God breathed these out. And because God breathed them out, that means they're perfect, inspired, and inerrant. And these words of truth in scripture, they remind us of the salvation, the wisdom that we need. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your word imparts wisdom to the simple. Not just a wisdom up here. We, we can agree with a lot of things cerebrally. We need wisdom in our hearts that changes us. This is not just the good news of another newspaper or a TV, article, TV episode. I, don't have to, I shouldn't go there. <laughs> this is the gospel of your salvation. You know what that literally means? The good news of your deliverance from God's wrath against your sin. The gospel of your salvation. The good news that you can be delivered from God's wrath against your sin through his son. And the gospel of our salvation doesn't necessarily just offer us good news because God knows we won't savor the good things until we've understood our deep need for them. The gospel of our salvation starts with some not-so-good news. See, back in Genesis 1 and 2, it sounds like all good news. God makes his people, his creation, perfect unity, harmony. And then Genesis 3 happens. A fall. Words of a lying serpent are favored over words of truth from a divine and holy God. Our first, ad, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, they ate of the forbidden fruit, the divinely forbidden fruit. And what ensued from that is they fell. They fell short of God's commands. They fell short of holiness. They fell out of perfect relationship with him, out of perfect relationship with each other. They were cast out of the garden because God in his perfect holiness can't be around unholy sinners. They believed words of lies from the serpent instead of words of truth. And that's the same problem that you and I struggle with so often. And now we have been born into Adam first. All right, Ephesians 2 will tell us we were dead in our sins and trespasses before coming to faith in Christ. We're born with this disposition to choose words of our own desires, our glory over God's glory. We're choose, cho- born with this predisposition to have a will bent away from God's con- conformity to his character. We are in need of a greater Adam, someone to succeed where our first ancestor failed, someone to represent us before a holy God, do what we could never do, to offer us what we could never earn. And the good news of the gospel of your salvation says God provides it, allows it, and even becomes that greater Adam. The gospel of your salvation gets real good as Jesus Christ steps into the scene. You see, Jesus is the one who left eternal comfort, left that perfect eternal comfort to enter into our misery, to enter into the sin, the sickness, the sorrow that you and I know in a day-to-day life. And he came for a purpose, to save sinners from their sin. That's what we talked about on Christmas Eve in Matthew chapter 1, to rescue sinners from their sin, our Redeemer, to purchase us with his blood, our Rescuer, to deliver us from God's wrath. And what he did was he lived sinlessly, perfectly, Yes, he was tempted by Satan's lies, as you and I and and Adam were, but at every step was without sin. In his life, he satisfied God's law completely. All the things that Paul thought the Jews could do, they couldn't. Jesus did. And then after living perfectly, sinlessly, he went to the cross to die sacrificially. 
In his death, he satisfies God's justice. His life satisfies God's law. His death satisfies God's justice all in our place. The things we can't do, the things we desperately need. It's Jesus dying for us, Jesus dying instead of us. And it's not just he for we, it's he for me. And here's what I mean. See, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we can agree about that. He for we sounds nice, doesn't it? Jesus came to die for sinners. Okay, I get that. But it has to become he for me. Jesus came to rescue you from your sin, to to invite you to turn to him, receive his forgiveness. He hasn't come for you to merely agree with him or to be aware of him. He's come to save you. And we don't agree with life rafts in the middle of an ocean, do we, for salvation? We don't. We cling to them. We throw ourselves entirely on them, knowing we have nothing else to bring to the equation of salvation except great need for it. See, it says in the end of this verse, you believed in him. You believed in him. We know in Acts 4 that there's no other name given to men under heaven by which they must be saved. Salvation comes through faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone, all to God's glory alone. We have been given so many gifts in this room. Many of us have been raised in Christian homes. Many of us have been exposed to the gospel of salvation for so much of our lives. Many of us could tell you in sight, Bible verse after Bible verse. But there's a difference between knowing it here and depending on them here. There's a difference between knowing and agreeing with truth up here, which we have the capacity to do, but saving knowledge of Jesus the wisdom unto salvation must be rooted in in a Christ-depending, God-glorifying relationship with him. And that relationship is what he offers if we would turn away from ourselves, turn away from trying to be good or trying to just ignore God and think that this life is all there is, the comforts of this life. I don't need any any more than what I have. Turn away from ourselves. Turn away from the things around us. Turn towards God. Receive his work on your behalf and know the great joy of being marked as his own forever. He's offering to give you his presence now and for eternity. Run to him. Throw yourself on him if you've not yet heard the gospel of your salvation. January 20th might be a snowy, icy day, and it might be the day that eternity begins for you. Don't let January, if you've yet to receive this gospel of your salvation, don't let January 20th be just another day. Let this be the day that you begin a walk with the Lord through his work to bring you to him. And then if this is is true of you, if you've been sealed as God's own forever, it changes what we do. It changes how we live. And here's what I primarily think it means. This doctrine of grace motivates urgent evangelism. Follow with me. Because we've been talking all about a God-centered view on salvation, and we continue that as we talk about evangelism. This doctrine of grace motivates urgent evangelism because we have seen that God has seen fit to use the proclamation so that others would hear and believe. All of us, if we are in Christ, we heard and believed through someone else sharing it with us. We are, we are meant to take this to other people, those who don't yet know Christ, and share it with them. So practically, we pray earnestly, God, open the eyes of their hearts to behold glory your glory, 
God, we help us to love sacrificially and intentionally, moving towards those who don't yet know you. And then help us to speak joyfully, to pray regularly, love sacrificially, speak joyfully all about the good news we have in Jesus. All it is is I, I know there's a holy and perfect eternal God. I know as a fallen creature that I am in need of reconciliation to him that I can't earn and I don't deserve. And so I thank God that he sent his perfect, his perfect son live, die, and be raised in my place to bring me to him. And so he invites, the king invites a response. The king actually demands a response. He is the sovereign king. And the proclamation of the gospel comes with an invitation. An RSVP must be made. Yes, through faith, or no, by apathy or pride. There is no in-between. And so if I love you, I must speak about my king, the one in whom I find most joy, the one in whom you hear me worshiping and speaking about joy in, because he saved me, a wretched sinner. Paul knows this. Paul says, Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We speak about God being our greatest treasure when we see him as meeting our greatest need. Otherwise, he just becomes a subject, a theological subject. But he's not that. He's come to meet our greatest need, to forgive us of all of our past, present, future sin, and therefore he must become our greatest treasure. God will be most glorified through us when we are most satisfied in him. Savor him, delight in him, and then live for his glory through the world. All right, before we leave, let's turn now to the promise, this eternal promise, God's pledge to us. We've heard about God's purpose to be glorified. We've seen that he brands, seals his people with his own presence in the Holy Spirit. And now, as if we need more, the kicker in verse 14, he gives us an eternal pledge, a guarantee that he will always be working towards these things and for our good forever. Turn with me as we move from 13 to 14. It says, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The guarantee of our inheritance. Many of us know the joy and the stress of buying a home or being in the house hunting process at some point, long time ago, maybe short time coming up. And home ownership begins with a down payment. Putting forward a substantial amount of money like a sweat-inducing as you write the check amount of money, and putting it down to begin a new existence. A guarantee, showing the bank you're good for it. And it's this guarantee, this down payment that you have to put down before you can enter into your new home. But it is the first step of entrance into a new existence. In verse 14, Paul says there is a guarantee, a down payment. Literally, the language is earnest money. (laughs) like the first installment on a mortgage, a guarantee that God puts down, not us, that God puts down to guarantee our future inheritance with him. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He puts down himself in the heart, in the lives of the believer to guarantee that we will acquire this inheritance that he's predestined and promised us. See, in verse 14, it says this guarantee, like a pledge of God's work to bring about God's purposes. And we know, we know that God will bring this about because we've seen it come to fruition in part through the resurrection. We've talked about Jesus living perfectly. We've talked about him dying sacrificially. But lest we forget what is of first importance, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 
this is of first importance, that Christ rose from the dead. Christ rose from the dead. The greater Adam, he tamed the serpent's lies. He went to the cross. He toppled the serpent's power. And then three days later, he rose from the tomb. Sounds like a pretty, uh, pretty remarkable resume right there. He beat every enemy that could ever separate us from God. He paid the full extent of our penalty that sin owes before him, and then he ensures that all of his power is then given to his people when he walks out of that tomb alive. And the spirit that raised Christ from the dead also lives in every believer. We know that the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you. Then he who raised Christ from the dead will also, will also, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Can you receive any better news this morning? Jesus is alive. He gives the Spirit to his people, and his Spirit will raise his people from the dead one day. Death might have some hold on us in this life and time, but for eternity, it doesn't. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Jesus is alive and reigning right now, and he gives his Holy Spirit to his people as the guarantee, the pledge that he's going to come back. It doesn't say if we acquire this possession, this inheritance. It doesn't say we might. It doesn't say hopefully. It doesn't say try harder, put up a bigger down payment on your own, of your own works. It says until we acquire possession of it. He's guaranteed it. And then he says until Jesus is returning, there is going to be a second advent. This first advent, the first arrival of Jesus to uh, beat our enemy and pay our penalty, very humble, wasn't it? They expected someone to overthrow the Roman authority. He came to die on a cross. And in doing so, he won the victory that we didn't even know we needed. But now we cling to. And his second advent, his return, will be one in glory. Where he will come, and Ephesians 2 says, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be revealed to all as the capital K king that we long for. The capital K king that restores all that's broken in this world, brings peace to all of the fears of our hearts, and ushers in this new eternity, this heavens, this new heavens and new earth that we so long for. It's kind of like seeing St. Louis Airport after 30 minutes of white knuckle, white knuckling the seat in front of you and tapping the pilot on the shoulder and making sure that he actually went to pilot school. We long. We desperately long to see the runway lights of Revelation 21, verse 3 to 4. We need to know in the midst of our fears, when things are hard at work, when things are hard in your marriage, when things are hard at home, that God is working to undo all that sin is broken. We need to receive the promise of Revelation 21, knowing that in Christ, all of God's promises find their yes and amen. That in Christ, he has not left his people. He will return to do all that we long for, to bring his people into eternal safety. Listen to Revelation 21, 3 and 4. We can never get, we could just preach on this, these two verses every week and it'd be worth it. Listen again to Revelation 21, 3 to 4 with fresh ears. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the position of sovereignty, goodness and greatness. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, Pay attention, the neon sign. Pay attention to this. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Death shall be 
no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Praise be to our living God. Praise to the God of all glory. The God who chooses his people for adoption as sons. The God who redeems his people through the blood of his own son. The God who assures his people by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit set as a seal, a brand upon their own hearts. All to the praise of God's glorious grace. The Apostle Paul has wondrous news. Wondrous good news of your salvation if you would turn to him. And so I leave you with this good news in a question. Have you received the gospel of your salvation? Seriously, have you received Jesus Christ as the one God promised to send? As the one who lived and died and was raised in your place, not the person to your left or to your right or your parents or your kids' place, in your place. Have you, forget, have you given God your sin received this forgiveness? If not, do so today. We're going to have time after the service to respond in prayer. You can just speak with the Lord and say, God, for so long, I have been content to be apathetic or prideful away from you. I have been willing to hold you at arm's length because I think I just needed myself. But today I see the gospel of my salvation. The invitation has been made. I want to depend on you. And I know that I have nothing to bring except a need for forgiveness. So thank you for Jesus. I trust in him for my eternal standing with you. And if you have run to him, if you have given God your sin, received his forgiveness, then the invitation today is, what does it look like to live to the praise of God's glory? What does this assurance by the Holy Spirit free you to do to the praise of God's glory? If we know his purpose, if we've been given his presence, if we've been given the eternal pledge, what else was there to do besides live to the praise of his glory? His renown becomes your resolve as soon as he becomes your greatest treasure. So let me pray for us. Um, good news with one service. You get all the errors of, that the first sermon usually gets out of, and this is a too lengthy sermon. But let's pray, thank God for who he is, and, and then speak with him in prayer as Mitchell gives a time where we can respond. Um, also, there's gonna be, there are going to be elders around the room. If you feel led to have someone pray for you, please see one of them. I'll be up front. The other elders will be either up front or around the room. Please see one of them. We have time to speak with each other, pray with each other, and speak with the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that all the things we don't deserve, all the things we desperately need, are only found in your Son. Lord, let us never graduate from this truth. Let us never hold you at arm's length or be apathetic to or prideful against you. Father, you have come to live, die, and be raised on our behalf. Let us live to the praise of your glory. We thank you that you poured your blood out, that we could be your children. And now, Lord, I pray that you would be drawing, uh, be drawing more and more people unto salvation in you, giving your people deep assurance in you. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you would accomplish all that would be to your glory in and through this church together. Amen.